Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, our last episode of 2022, we'll be joined by Christina Rogers of EY. She is their global consumer leader. She'll be joining us to discuss their 11th edition of their Future Consumer Index. She'll also talk about what we can expect from the U.S. consumer looking ahead as we turn the calendar to 2023. In news, we'll discuss early holiday sales numbers. And in our looking ahead segment, we'll look ahead at shoes and the shoe dynamic within retail as a number of shoe-related stories have broken over the past couple of weeks. Quick reminder, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. And we thank everyone who has listened to the show during 2022. We certainly do appreciate all our listeners out there. And if you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so retailpodcast at gmail.com. Or even if you've got an idea for a guest, we appreciate hearing all of those. All right. So let's talk about early holiday retail spending numbers as they've begun to roll in in earnest, despite some relative bearishness from third-party data and some other forecasters. Some early numbers, or at least numbers as far as they're coming in early so far, they seem to paint a pleasant picture of the holiday selling season. You know, From my personal perspective, and I traveled throughout several different markets during the week prior to Christmas, one of the reasons we didn't have a show last week, retail stores were fuller than they've been for some time in mid-December. And in fact, thinking back to 2018 and 2019, the stores this year seemed a little bit busy and parking lots were full in some shopping centers, whether they be neighborhood centers, whether they be power strips. They were full to where there were queues of waiting vehicles in some markets I was in waiting for spots. And it's interesting to note that the curbside spaces for these retailers were almost always empty. And we've talked a little bit so far this year about how the appetite for curbside seems to be going away in exchange for more brick and mortar shopping, more ship to home shopping, and then that buy online pickup in store shopping as well. But it's interesting to see these shopping centers, three to four curbside spaces set aside for all four to five retailers there. They're all empty. All the other spots in the center are filled. And so it might be another thing for landlords to tackle during this coming year after transitioning so many of the parking spaces to the curbside spaces. Overall, though, personally, I found in-person shopping for essentials borderline unbearable at most retailers. Obviously, full crowds, but staffing levels were low. Lines at self-checkouts seemingly never-ending, especially at grocery stores. One Walmart neighborhood market I went to had a line snaking around 50 feet beyond the self-checkout but just one manned check stand open out of the five that they had installed in that store. And that wasn't even the night before Christmas or anything like that. You're talking on the 20th or 21st. And I do want to give credit also to Bed Bath & Beyond. Of course, they're under new leadership. Their shelves were a little bit emptier than most retailers. It appeared as though they were either suffering from supply chain issues still, and we know that they've been a little bit more pronounced for Bed Bath & Beyond than other retailers and lasting a little bit longer for Bed Bath & Beyond than other retailers. Or maybe it was a willing lack of inventory in a lot of categories as they try to cut back a little bit. But the two stores I was in during the last week, they were amply staffed, 
Lines were minimal, and floor associates were actually able to use technology in an appropriate manner to assist customers. I watched as associates would check in stocks, check stock at neighboring stores, and I do think it is notable as far as Bed Bath & Beyond is concerned that they've been able to transition a little bit better in terms of technology than some other retailers out there. I was at a Dick's Sporting Goods and they were able to check in-store inventory, but they said, you know, hey, that's wrong a lot of the time, and we probably don't have any in stock when their in-store inventory said they would have 12 or 13 in stock. So I think it's a little bit different for all retailers, but do want to give credit where credit's due as far as Bed Bath & Beyond is concerned. And then you look at some media outlets throughout the country. This is something that we always look at after big shopping holidays. And in this case, we saw media outlets in Oklahoma and Texas noting reports of increased traffic but flat sales also versus last year at some of the mall retailers that they interviewed and some of the mall owners that they interviewed said traffic is well up over last year. And -and brick-and-mortar retailers in Ann Arbor, Michigan, it was reported up there, they reported in-store traffic and sales both being robust and both seeing increases over last year. So the early third-party numbers indicate that some of these anecdotal impressions might be correct here. As traffic went up, so too did spend just a bit. And first we begin with MasterCard numbers. MasterCard is usually the first firm every holiday season to produce numbers, also one of the first firms to produce numbers after Black Friday and Cyber Monday. But we should remember that immediate numbers can vary slightly from those that come out after the season concludes in full, in part because those retailers would be reporting returns and in part because a lot of holiday season metrics include the time running up to New Year's. But still, MasterCard had U.S. sales up 7.6% in the period between November 1st and November 24th. Depending on the inflation metric you use, this is roughly in line with year-over-year inflation or even ahead of it slightly, like I said, depending on your metric. The sales increase beat MasterCard's own projections. Those were fairly bullish at 7.1% increases year over year. And even those numbers accounted for more sales being pulled into October, which is something MasterCard analysts said was likely to happen and something a lot of people noted did happen as we got earnings results from October. Now, we should mention that the inclusion of restaurant sales in the MasterCard data does skew this a bit. Restaurant sales were expected to cannibalize slightly from retail sales. And so the projections that called for retail sales exclusively outside of those restaurant sales to rise 4 to 5% were probably in the ballpark since restaurant sales, according to MasterCard, rose by over 15%. And on this show, we typically exclude restaurant sales from some of those macro level numbers. Now, in terms of categories, apparel actually took a surprising jump upwards to 4.4%. And the reason I say it was surprising, some people did forecast for this, but apparel was the one category where everyone we've interviewed over the last three months, they didn't have any kind of a consensus. Some interviewees thought sales would be very strong as people continue to seek out in-person experiences and therefore seek out the apparel that goes with those in-person experiences. But some thought sales would be squeezed as people focused on maybe lower and higher cost items, kind of that barbell effect or bifurcation, if you will, depending on their income group. But 4.4% is at the higher end of any projections we saw for the holidays. And Deloitte's consumer survey, so this is thinking back a few months ago, Deloitte's 
survey of all these consumers in the U.S., they showed that shoppers expected to spend less on clothing and accessories this year versus last. And I think this is interesting. This is always something we note, but we've discussed the difference between intent and execution before. This is actually something Christina Rogers will talk about a little bit as far as those eco-friendly buyers or those environmental-minded buyers. Oftentimes, they say things matter, but when they speak with their pocketbooks, they say quite another thing. And so there's this difference between intent and execution. A great example of this would be that Deloitte's consumer survey had significant differences in e-commerce versus brick-and-mortar intent versus their execution. Now, this is very typical. One thing we've learned over the past three to four years, as you look at some of this data, as you look at some of these consumer interviews, people think they buy more online than they actually do. And in fact, this year, if you look at Deloitte's survey, shoppers said the split would be about 63-35 towards online, that 2% unsure. But MasterCard had online sales at 21.6% of retail sales, which is up from the 20.9% market share online sales had last year, according to MasterCard's numbers but it was well short of the amount that consumers thought they were going to spend online. And customers obviously felt the same regarding apparel this year. People thought they would buy less, but they ended up buying more over last year by that 4.4%. And this could be seen as a potential win for some retailers. We won't know exactly who until the fourth quarter earnings come out, but customers in Deloitte's survey elsewhere, they accurately predicted Their pullback in electronics, which is bad news for other retailers. Per MasterCard, electronics sales fell 5.3% year over year, which is slightly less than the consumers had notified Deloitte. The consumers were looking at as much as a double-digit decrease in spending on electronics, but you see it fall 5.3% year over year, again, according to MasterCard's data. Jewelry was also down 5.4% versus last year. Now, on that topic of e-commerce that we mentioned earlier, online sales did bump up and did gather more share of wallet. Online sales were up 10.6%, which was a strong enough number and right where some of the bullish projections for e-commerce sales landed. And e-commerce continues to gather share of wallet versus brick and mortar, but that growth in share has been a little bit more tempered than was expected by some post-2020. Some experts called for a sea change by 2024 or 2025. At least as yet, this hasn't happened, and e-commerce in terms of penetration has only really moved up about one percentage point since 2020, since that big change due to the pandemic. And one other thing to note, these numbers, I kind of mentioned this earlier, as quickly as they've come out, they've not accounted for potential returns. In aggregate, it would be reasonable to expect returns to come in roughly where they have in seasons past because we didn't see e-commerce take a big market share jump this year. Again, e-commerce sales associated with higher levels of returns. So because you only saw e-commerce sales jump up a little bit in comparison to brick and mortar sales, you're not going to expect maybe the high level of returns we've seen in years past. That plus Retailers, as we've talked about, not everyone, but a select few, they've started charging restock fees for returns, and this could also perhaps mute the impact of returns going forward. So early numbers, mostly from MasterCard, but other anecdotal reports from news outlets signal that 
actually retail sales seem to be okay this year. The big concern from a lot of media outlets was how inflation would impact retail sales. And it appears as though retail sales, if nothing else, are keeping pace with inflation or maybe outstripping inflation just slightly. But it's funny because in a lot of these news articles surrounding MasterCard's report, whether you're looking at Reuters or CNBC, they all mention, oh, well, this growth isn't as much as what we saw last year. Last year, to put it in perspective, was a record year of growth. So I don't think anyone was seeing it come in above where it did last year. But in terms of MasterCard's numbers, to see it come in within 1% of the growth that we saw last year, that is pretty notable. And it suggests that the more bullish projections out there, including those from Deloitte, might be very, very true when we see all of the numbers bear out. So I think this is an interesting early set of data from MasterCard and looking forward certainly to more sets of data as we get all this information regarding holiday shopping season in 2022. So that being said, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Christina Rogers, once again, EY's global consumer leader. She'll talk about their 11th edition of their future consumer index, but we'll talk about fashion and apparel. In fact, some of the mixed forecasts going ahead for fashion and apparel, what we might see there and what consumers are demanding more of, what's driving purchase decisions outside of price. We're going to talk all about the 2023 consumer right after this. As we prepare to turn the calendar to 2023, it's important to reassess not only the state of the retail landscape, but also the state of the consumer. Various macroeconomic factors have served to drastically alter the way consumers act, think, and behave over the past five years. And each year, the folks at EY put together the Future Consumer Index for this very purpose, to determine various consumer groups going ahead, what characterizes them, and most importantly, how retailers can best appeal to the ever-changing consumer. Joining us to discuss the 11th edition of the Future Consumer Index, as well as many other things, is Christina Rogers, EY Global Consumer Leader. Christina, welcome back to the show. Trent, thank you. Always a pleasure. First, I was wondering if you could provide us some background on the Consumer Index that you put out, how the data gets collected, and kind of the driving force there behind the research that you do at EY. Sure. Initially, this kind of came to fruition as we all went into lockdown and into the pandemic. So going back even into March of 2020, when I think you and I probably went home one day and said, life is going to change. <laughs> and from my mind, I thought we need to start tracking this. And so we've been, we're at wave 11 now, as you mentioned, because we've been taking the pulse of people all around the world to really understand first off and its transition since then. But what was happening to consumers? What were people doing? What were their sentiments? How were they feeling as they were locked down and as we came out of that? And there was a lot of really good content and data and, and information that was coming out of that that we could use with our clients. And so we decided to keep this moving forward. And of course, transitioning away from research around the COVID and health and the pandemic itself, but just what is the pulse of where people are now? And we've widened it out to 27 countries. We added Netherlands, Nigeria, and Vietnam this year. And we are now kind of reaching over 21,000 people to get a sense of just where we are. 
And as you mentioned, that is a massive number of people surveyed. Usually you see these type of surveys, you see 500 to 1,000 people, but really do get quite a breadth of people that you interview for this research. Now, I'm curious, as you mentioned, the 11th version, so it's not necessarily done yearly, just at regular points throughout the year. But what were some of the headline findings from your most recent canvassing of these 21,000 people? Yeah, and that's right. We were certainly going out into the field much more often when this was more pandemic focused, simply because we had no idea what was going on. Now that things have calmed down and settled down, we want to take a pulse probably twice a year. And so we were out in the field in October and we've got the research that we're talking about now. And certainly, and it's probably even heightened as we've moved through the fall, you know, across the board in almost every market, consumers are really preparing for you know, a very financially cautious environment, both just in general, but also through the holiday season and really thinking about just cost of living, certainly across Europe, just energy prices, which are skyrocketing. There's certainly still concern about environmental aspects of consumption and what people spend on. It feels to me there's just a really thoughtful, we're in a really thoughtful phase for where consumers are in terms of just thinking about their budgets, being cautious, wondering if they need all the things they thought they did, you know, three or four years ago. And then just thinking about, you know, what is all of this doing to our planet? And is there anything they could do differently? I think what's so interesting about some of the numbers is you mentioned, obviously, this has been done on a fairly routine basis since the pandemic started. And you see fairly large fluctuations in terms of what consumers are thinking about. And one of the things that we're always looking at is what drives the purchase decision for the consumer. And in many markets throughout the country, the United States included, price is still king there. But what are some other things, you you kind of alluded to it in the last answer, but what are some other things that are seeping into the consciousness of the global consumer as far as how they make decisions on what they want to buy? Yeah, you said it right. I mean, in most markets, you know, affordability, people looking at affordability, looking at their budgets, looking at their finances is still really driving the way they think about consumptions and what they purchase. But as I did say, there's still a very significant number of people who at least say that they are very much aware of our planet and they want to make better choices. They want to obtain the information to make better choices, whether it's in food and beverage, whether it's their clothing, whether it's things they bring into their home. The challenge there, of course, is that does clash with affordability. So one of the things that we're certainly doing with our clients is helping them think through, well, how do we provide what consumers want in this space at a more affordable price point? Because certainly one of the challenges right now is to get consumers products that they believe in and that they feel aligned with their values around better planet and sustainability, that can be expensive. And so, you know, that's a real challenge right now. But I mean, the nice thing coming out of the research is that, I mean, certainly if you go back to where we were two years ago, we all sat at home, right? We saw how much trash we were <laughs> compiling in our homes. We saw that LA was clear from smog for the first time in that hundred years. And, you know, there was a lot of emotional feeling, I think, about the environment throughout the pandemic. And some of that's gone away. People have gone back to habits, but a lot of that is sticking. And what is, I think, the challenge now is to help people, to help consumers sort out what it is that they can do and how retailers, how manufacturers can help them get onto the path that they would like to be on. Yeah, you mentioned this self-path thing with consumers. And I think this is so interesting because it seems like so much of it comes down to communication. Obviously, consumers are very concerned about the environment, 
But also, many of them said, hey, look, we're really concerned even about the price of groceries going up on a consistent basis. How important is it for whether it's grocers or other retail sectors to communicate with the public and and kind of help them through this thought process? Because as you said, we are seeing a more thoughtful consumer. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think we've seen this in past cycles of research where consumers are saying, I'd like to do better, whether it's making better choices around just my budget and what I can put into it, or I'd like to make better choices around buying sustainable products or you know, being a better part of that. But certainly one thing that we've noticed in previous rounds of research is consumers are also quite lazy. <laughs> so maybe it's not so much on the finance piece because there's only so much budget to go around, but there is an absolute expectation that, for example, retailers provide the information that consumers are looking for. So whether it's around price point or discounting or sales, or whether it's around making better choices around sustainability, even if that's fast fashion or what have you, the expectation is that consumers don't want to work too hard for finding out that information. And they're expecting retailers and manufacturers to make that very easy, very transparent, very available so that the consumer can make a reasonable choice along the dimensions that they are looking for. And I think that's rough. I mean, that's putting a lot, you know, I think we're seeing that there's a real action and intention gap with consumers, especially in the area of sustainability, where they have a lot of aspirations, but they expect to be led towards them. That's a fantastic point I think you make in terms of that gap between maybe expectation and intent and whether they're following through on it. I do want to circle back to price because one of the things that the 11th edition of this report stressed was that there is kind of a pessimistic outlook as far as personal finances are concerned. Many people thinking that they're going to be worse off over the next three years than they were maybe over the prior three years. What are we going to see or what could we see from consumers in the next year or three years even as they begin to shift their mindset around kind of this pessimistic financial outlook? And then also how do retailers adjust accordingly to that? We're absolutely seeing, you know, that feeling of just having to be cautious, having to rein things in, having to be very thoughtful. And frankly, to be honest, the U.S. is a bit of a party scene compared to some of the data we're seeing in Western Europe and UKI, where, you know, it's pretty dismal. But even in the United States, I mean, there's both looking at your budget and looking at prices, and then there's just people taking a hard look. And I think some of this is coming out from, you know, all of the time we spent at home through the pandemic, and we've changed our lifestyles and so on. But they're really taking a hard look at what do I need? So of course, on the food and beverage front, you obviously need to feed yourself and your family if you have one. And so there's really a lot of caution around waste. And even on this point, what we've seen in the very recent past is more people shunning grocery delivery and going back into the stores, because I think part of what consumers experienced is, you know, large delivery fees and overbuying when they're sort of not in the store and really sticking to their shopping list. And so I think that's already a trend that's starting is people getting back into grocery stores, even though they really enjoyed the convenience of online grocery shopping that they you know, started doing during the pandemic. So I think that's one thing that certainly be happening on the grocery front. If I think about fashion and clothing, one of the trends we've seen, and this has been very steady, I would say for the last year in our research, is just not needing to 
keep up as much with either latest fashion trends or latest hot brands or even latest technology. And so that, again, is something that retailers are going to have to take a look at in terms of us. You know, we're not the same consumer that we were three years ago. We're not our buying patterns are not the same. Things we care about are changing. And so we're seeing that quite clearly through our research. I think off the top of my head, it was over 50 percent. I mean, even close to to 63, 65 percent of people researched that really said they don't need to keep up with the latest fashion anymore or beauty trends. And that's quite different than where we were three or four years ago. Now, one of the things that you've done a great job in doing in terms of these reports is kind of breaking down some of the different consumer groups. And I wanted to get back to maybe the area where intent isn't the same as execution. And we see that from one of your groups, which is the Health First Consumer. And I'm kind of curious because this ties back into some of the things we were talking about in terms of environmental impacts. But as far as the Health First Consumer is concerned, what are some interesting facets that kind of define that consumer group? And what are some things retailers need to know about this group of shoppers? From a health first perspective, I mean, they were clearly, you could imagine that this to be the case, you know, a year and a half ago, they were really popping as a group that we were seeing around the world because of course, people were still very concerned about their own health, the health of their families. We didn't know what was going on with the pandemic, with COVID, with vaccines, et cetera. And so, of course, we've seen that group of people in almost all markets shrink down to, I suppose, what I would imagine to be kind of a, a more natural level. And, you, you know, that is certainly people who are more aware of their nutrition, their fitness. When I think about food and beverage companies or grocery retailers, you know, looking for food that is more local, perhaps looking for items that are not full of processed foods and additives and et cetera. But to be honest, that population still exists in every market. But if you think about what it takes and the cost to take care of your health in the way some people might want to, I think it's really shrinking because of the affordability and price segment of people just exploding almost everywhere around the world. One of the other consumer groups with a very large delta in certain characteristics from other categories is this society first consumer. What are the characteristics of the society first consumer? And what are some ways in which you know, going back to retail communication, what are some ways in which retailers can maybe communicate, hey, we are connected, we are tied in with your community and we want to make society better as a whole? Yeah, I, so to be honest, I love this group of people. <laughs> I loved them all through looking at the research through the pandemic. I mean, it just seemed to be a group of consumers and people out there who really wanted, and it made sense, of course, during the pandemic, these were the people who were willing to share their data, their health data, their COVID data, their anything to, to sort of you know, make the pandemic go away, to make their contribution, to make their local neighborhood better. And so there's that altruistic characteristic that runs through this group of people. And that group of people still is there. And I think they're certainly cutting back on things where it doesn't hurt them, but they do want to be connected to their local neighborhoods or their local cities. And so certainly retailers or any manufacturers who are wanting to connect with them would want to be connected and providing goods and services and products that somehow have some local 
affiliation in that local area could be wide. So even in the United States, I mean, local can still be, you know, kind of several states around me, but it's not importing things from, let's say, outside of the U.S. food, for example, or produce or fruits and vegetables. And I think, you know, retailers or manufacturers who are clear about the communication about, hey, we understand you, we understand the causes that you're interested in. We want to engage with policymakers or, you know, local leaders in your cities or your state, and we're visible there. That's, I think, a great way to engage this group of people because they are still there. And I think the one thing we've seen is they're willing to reduce their spending overall if they can do better for their you know, societies, for their local communities. And as we wrap up our look at consumers that we might see in different consumer groups, we heard from a lot of third-party data companies that people might be spending more on experiences this holiday season that might take away from retail market share. And that is another type of consumer that seems to be <laughs> emerging in greater numbers, particularly in the U.S., that experience-first consumer. What are some of the characteristics of that experience-first consumer, and how can retailers maybe maintain share of wallet that they're getting from these consumers that are wanting to get out, maybe travel, and experience new things? Yeah, and we have seen the U.S. has been pretty steady, actually, in terms of that segment of people that we're researching that is still an experience-first segment of people. We've seen a real decline in that group of people across other markets, especially in Europe and in the UK. And I think that's because affordability has just become such a big concern and such a big issue. One thing I would say, so I'll get to your question, certainly, but you know, I think what we do jump to experience thinking about restaurants and vacations and activities, but the one thing that also pops is looking for a phenomenal experience could be a retail experience. It could be a retail digital experience. It's just having something that engages me, that gives me some sort of excitement or just something that, you know, I've been missing. And so I would say definitely not limited to what we think of, say, vacation or leisure. It could be just the best in-store experience or the best digital experience. And when we talk about those other things, though, in terms of dining, vacations, activities, that group of people that are really focused on experience first, they have not cut back as much. So they're sort of kind of day-to-day thinking about budgets and what they're up to is not as gloomy. They tend to have above average education and income. And I think that the data is almost half of them have booked a vacation that they will go on in the next six months. And, you know, a good 50% of them intend to spend more on that vacation than they did in the past. So it's definitely a group of people that are making up for lost time that want to get out of the house. They want to be busy. They want to start enjoying things again. And they just want to catch up on things that they missed during the pandemic. And so that is certainly a segment of the population where if you're wanting to sell them something or provide something that they might be interested in, they're all ears and they have the budget to do it. So let's wrap up with kind of a holistic view at 2023 in general. I'm curious, in your opinion, what are maybe one or two things that you feel as though retail as a whole in 2023 will be defined by? I think it's just, if I was sitting and thinking about managing my retail business, one thing I would certainly say, I would be looking at all of this consumer data and really understanding, you know, who is that consumer I'm serving? Because I think as a whole, you know, we can't be counted on in the way that we we could be, you know, three or four years ago. We're not buying seasonally, we're buying in all sorts of 
digital spaces. We want the products and services to come to us. We're buying completely different ways and we're really off cycle and we're not sure we care about brands anymore. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do, I think, just to really understand who is out there, what is the value I'm bringing, you know, to that consumer? Because people, I think, will still be tight-fisted. You know, we're not, my impression from all of the data, the economic data I'm looking at as well, is we're just not the same consumer we used to be. And I'm talking about us, you know, in North America, primarily right now, where, you know, we were very consumption-driven, we were very deal-driven, and we thought we needed, you know, more than we probably ever did. And so some of that has gone away. So I really think there's a you know real strategic review of who we are as consumers. What's the segment the retailer is going after? What does that segment see as value? How do you build loyalty, which is critical because for certain generations, we don't have enough data in our work to see this, but for certain generations, you know, loyalty is just not something that's built in at this point with the way you know, people are influenced in social media, et cetera. So there's just a lot of work to do to really understand, you know, who it is you're serving, what do they want, how often are they buying, and how do you build that value and trust and loyalty with that group of people? It seems like a process of simply constantly asking the question, who is my consumer today? Because we are changing more rapidly than ever. Well, Christina, once again, thank you for taking the time joining us today on the show and thank you for all of your great insights as we look at the next 12 months yeah i'm excited to see you know what let's look back at this podcast in six months and see you know where we are as always we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts We thank Christina for joining us and coming up over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to preview what 2023 might look like. We're going to do it through a few different lenses, through the lenses of promotions, through the lens of consumer motivations, which is something that Christina talked a little bit about, as well as some of the retail trends that we might expect to see over the next year or so. And one trend that I'm going to be keeping an eye on over the next year has to do with footwear. You see, and this is something that has been discussed over the last 12 months or so, with the announcement particularly that Nike was pulling back a lot of their stock from the likes of Foot Locker, is where some of these retail shoe stores were going to see growth or potential growth. Really, a lot of the talk surrounding retail footwear stores was about stemming losses instead of finding growth. Well, A number of news stories came out over the past couple of weeks. It was capped off by a Nike earnings call just before Christmas in which they reported their second quarter results. And what we know Nike is doing is pulling a lot of their product out of stores, choosing to go direct to consumer, which seems at least on the sales front to be paying off for them because their direct sales were up 16% year over year, up 25% on a currency neutral basis. Now that is good news. And again, that's just the direct sales portion of Nike's revenue. Now the bad news for Nike is that their cost of sales was also up 24% year over year. And this represents a massive change. Part of this is from what they call demand creation, which is essentially marketing and advertising. But a lot of this is overhead expense and 
They said on the call and in the prepared remarks, look, a lot of this expense is because of our direct fulfillment and our direct sales. There are a lot more costs associated with this. And as such, you saw the cost of sales increase. So obviously, I don't think Nike is going to backtrack on this mission anytime soon to sell more direct to consumer. And again, we're seeing about one out of every five pair of shoes now be sold direct to the consumer. But I think you're going to see maybe not as robust of a direct-to-consumer platform from Nike as what some expected. Now, part of this is because another study came out that said that people were watching what they spent on footwear as a result of inflation-related concerns. And this came by way of Alex Partners through the outlet Retail Dive. But 43% of women and 30% of men in this survey said that they had actually taken away the priority from footwear purchases due to inflation-related concerns. And what's worse is for brands like Nike, at least, 60% of those surveyed say they'd switch footwear brands, and 80% said they'd switch retailers to save money. And of course, Nike is not a brand you typically purchase if you're looking to save money, at least not if you're a sneakerhead there. And what's interesting is also 77% of the people polled in this survey said they chose to shop for shoes in-store in the last 12 months. Now, there was a slight increase also in those that have bought shoes online, but ultimately for Nike, you're looking at a retailer that outside of larger markets in the U.S. doesn't really have a brick-and-mortar presence. I think this is one of the reasons why you see Nike's continued partnership with Hibbit Sports and City Gear, which is a company that has far more outlets in rural areas far more outlets in the American South than does Nike. So you have this direct-to-consumer dynamic, and then you also have this announcement from DSW, or really their owner and designer brands, their parent company, which is that they've acquired Topo, which is a kind of road and trail running shoe source to add to their private label brands. DSW is seeking to increase their private label brand penetration, Over the next few years, they said their goal is to reach one-third of all sales by 2026 in terms of their own brand sales or their private label brand sales. And this would seem to dovetail nicely with consumers willing to maybe trade down a little bit if the price point is right. However, one of the reasons why I kind of question this is because when you look at Topo and the acquisition there from DSW, you know, I don't know a whole lot about footwear. I'm not a sneakerhead, but I am a runner. And I can tell you that running groups I belong to, and out of all the people I run with, no one really likes the Topo shoe. So DSW has basically acquired something that, at least in the running community, isn't smiled upon, at least when you consider market share gains by the likes of Brooks and Hoka in this space, as well as some other up-and-coming brands that are there. So uh, interesting play by DSW. All of this, all three of these things that I've mentioned, this the Nike earnings call, the survey, and DSW announcing that they want to increase their own brand's presence, leads me to believe that 2023 is going to be a really interesting year for footwear. I'm anxious to see, again, how the direct-to-consumer push by Nike and, to a lesser extent, Adidas and Under Armour works for them. You're seeing Nike costs go up. You're seeing sales, of course, direct sales, go up because people don't really have another outlet to turn to. 
So ultimately, does this play work out for Nike in 2023? I don't think you're going to see Nike backtrack on this until there's a change in leadership, which may not happen for many, many years. But I am curious to see how this plays out in terms of Nike's bottom line, not their top line, but in terms of Nike's bottom line. I'm also curious to see how much people maybe push towards other brands and trade away from Nike and Adidas and Under Armour and some of the typical players in the athletic shoe space, much less some of the bigger players in the fashion shoe space as well. So with that, you look at some of Dick's initiatives, you look at DSW's initiatives in terms of private labels. How much are you going to see their footwear sales potentially increase or decrease with this pullback from Nike? DSW is another store that Nike pulled out of, and we know that they're reducing penetration in Dick's stores as well. So exactly what is the shoe or footwear dynamic we're going to be looking at at the end of 2023? Will it shake out that more consumers are okay with purchasing some of these own brands, some of these private label brands? How are consumers treating footwear in retail stores? And do we see an increase in consumers purchasing footwear online, despite knowing that there's a very good chance the shoes might not fit properly or that they'll have to return shoes, which has happened with about 85% of the shoes I have personally purchased online. So can't be the only one out there to be sure. So I think this is a very interesting facet of retail and certainly one I'm looking ahead at over the next 12 months. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus podcast this week. Big thanks to Leighton behind the scenes for helping out. I'm Trent saying so long until 2023. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be excited to join you once again approximately seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.